0: Now I think a picture is going to go up on the screen of the ancient city of Ephesus. If you were there in the ancient city of Ephesus before it was ruins and when it was impressive buildings, there was a church there that you would want to be part of. I think we can get rid of the picture now. It had been started by the Apostle Paul. But the way he described it was, it actually was the church that God had bought with his own blood. It was a church that had experienced the Holy Spirit working with such power that there were miraculous healings and driving out of evil spirits and people left their occult practices and burnt books worth a total of 140 years' wages. Occult books. And the sales of idols fell to such an extent that it provoked a riot does it sound like a good church to be in? It sound like someone that's known some power and love and got something of the gospel. And yet when Paul left Ephesus, he said that church would be attacked by people who'd be like savage wolves among a flock. They'd so hurt the church. And they'd even come from within that church. How could the church be protected? Well, 1 Timothy tells us because Paul was writing to Timothy who was in Ephesus and he's writing to Timothy to protect the church. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 1 verses 1 to 11. 1 Timothy 1 verses 1 to 11. And we're turning to it because the need to protect the church wasn't just true in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Sadly, it's been true for the church down through its history. So churches founded by the Apostle Paul and Martin Luther and John Wesley and many others have later taken in false teaching and the light has stopped shining. So obviously we cannot say it will never happen to Hollywell. We can't think it wouldn't happen here. How can we protect the church for the future? How can we keep the light shining here? Well, 1 Timothy tells us some of the things we need. What do we need? Well, verses 1 to 11 tell us we need, first of all, people appointed by God. This is the emphasis in verses 1 and 2. People appointed by God. Now, it used to be that the church was thought of as like an aeroplane. Nobody ever said this, but the sort of approach to church was rather like this. Like an aeroplane. What's an aeroplane need? Well, a pilot to safely fly it. That's the minister. And the pilot has some co-pilots to help him. That's the other elders. And then the aeroplane needs a cabin crew to look nice and make you comfortable. That's the deacons. And then everyone else is a passenger. Just sit back in your chairs and enjoy the journey. Now, I'm exaggerating, but that has often been basically the approach to church. Thankfully, we've moved beyond that model of the church. Thankfully, we've, we've recognised the New Testament church is not like an aeroplane, just sit in your seats and the pilot will get you there safely. It's like a body, with every member playing a part. In fact... Often the most valuable part is done by the least seen person. I reckon we had an example of that this morning. Any idea what I'm thinking of? Well, the person who was baptised. How did he come to faith? Oh, from his landlady. You might not have known that. You probably didn't notice that. Bringing the gospel to him. I reckon that's a pretty good example. So the church is like a body. Everyone has a role, But that doesn't mean no need for leadership. Isn't the church often actually like a pendulum? And it swings from one extreme to the other. And it can swing from, we're an aeroplane pilot, just drive us safely, to no need for leadership. But it doesn't mean that. There is need for leadership. So as we found in our home groups, when the Hebrew church was in danger of going back to Judaism, they needed to be told, Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. When the church in Turkey was feeling the pressure from a hostile society, they needed good leadership. So hopefully we'll get onto in our home groups, 1 Peter 5. To the elders among you I appeal, as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock. They needed shepherding. They're a flock. They needed a shepherd. When the church in Crete faced a society marked by greed and laziness and false teaching, Paul made this his priority. Titus 1 verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders. You see, their church is under pressure needing leadership. And so also here, leadership is important in 1 Timothy. Now, Paul often started his letters by asserting his role, but here in 1 Timothy, he does it more strongly than usual. 1 Timothy says, Chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. He asserts his authority as an apostle and he puts it more strongly than usual. It's by the command of God. And he asserts it again in chapter 2, verse 7. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. He asserts his authority. And then he links Timothy's authority to his. That's what he's doing in verse 2. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Which isn't just an expression of fondness. Uh, No doubt there is something of that. It's not just an expression of... Ashley, I brought the faith to you. No doubt there's something of that too. But it is Timothy, my genuine successor. And you can see a little of that by the my son language cropping up again in verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction, or better, I give you this charge in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. I give you this charge. He says, my son, but he then uses the language of the army. It's the language of an officer passing on a responsibility. It's the language of an officer commanding someone to take up a duty. So here is the language of Paul as a military officer, and his general has told him what to do, and now he's passing it on to Timothy. By the way, all this insistence here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 by Paul, I'm an apostle, I have authority, and Timothy is my successor, shows us although this letter is written to Timothy, it was for the rest of the church to hear as well. Timothy didn't need reassuring that Paul really was an apostle. But the rest of the church might need to know what their relationship was to Paul and more importantly to Timothy, his successor. Well, Paul was appointed by Christ. Timothy was appointed by Paul. How does it get to us and what relevance does it have to us? Many of you know Andrew Kelligan who was a Roman Catholic monk and he said actually under the system he was used to it was like a gigantic game of tag down through history. An apostle lays hands on someone, they lay hands on someone, they lay hands on someone and 2,000 years later it supposedly got to you. He wasn't any longer holding to that position. How is it relevant to us? How do we tell? Who has God appointed to have authority in his church? The answer's in chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because Paul knows that Timothy won't be around forever. So what will happen after Timothy? Well chapter 3 says there are people called elders. And they're to have the character that's described here. And the church is to look out for people with that character. 2 Timothy adds they are to be people who reliably pass on the truth the apostles taught. Look out and check that as well, rather than just presuming it. And the church is to look for and appoint such people, prayerfully trusting the Holy Spirit to guide them. And so we get people appointed by God. How can we protect the church for the future? Because we need to. Well, we need people appointed by God, and then secondly, who receive grace, mercy, and peace from God. Now, what is the most frequent prayer in the Bible? What's the most frequent prayer in the Bible? It could be, Lord have mercy. I reckon if you count verse 2 as a prayer, it's possibly the most frequent prayer in the Bible. Verse 2, is this a prayer? I reckon you can call it a prayer. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Nearly every letter in the New Testament begins with grace and a prayer for grace and peace. And occasionally mercy is slipped in as well. So if it's a prayer, it's the most frequent prayer in the Bible. For grace and peace, or for grace, mercy and peace. Now because it's there at the beginning of a letter... Uh, like a greeting, we can easily skip over it. It's just a formality. It's just like we write, dear so-and-so, whether or not they're dear to us at all. But it isn't just a formality. God's given us one book, and he was careful what words went in it. And so for it to include repeatedly this prayer means we must so much need grace, mercy, and peace. In the context here in 1 Timothy, grace is God's undeserved goodness that saves us. Timothy's saved, isn't he? Well, there's saved past and there's saved present and there's saved future. Because that saving hasn't finished in Timothy. No, God is still giving more grace as he continues the work of making Timothy more like Christ. He still needs grace. Mercy, isn't he forgiven? Why would he need Mercy. Well, mercy is acts of help and pity that we never stop needing. And that grace and mercy results in the experience of peace. Peace even for Timothy under the pressures of leading that church. Timothy still needed grace, mercy, peace. We all still need grace, mercy and peace. So in this second point, I've just got one very simple thing I'm getting at here. I want to appeal to you, please pray this for your elders. Pray for everyone as as well. But I'm particularly appealing to you, please pray for your elders for grace, mercy, peace. My brother-in-law, Jerry, when he's asked how he ended up as a missionary to Kurds, he tells this story about hearing what he called a boring and poor sermon. I don't even know who it's by. I'm not passing judgment on it. He said it was a boring and poor sermon. But there was something in that sermon that for some reason got him thinking that he should take the gospel to people who were strangers in the land. And for him that meant Kurds, living in Oxford, where he was living. So what he called a boring and poor sermon had a lasting impact, because today he's a missionary to Kurds. Well, whether or not this is a boring and poor sermon, i almost said you can tell me afterwards, please don't, it will upset me. It could have a lasting impact, if it results in you praying and keeping on praying this for your elders. God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, give them grace, mercy and peace. Please will you pray that for us? And whatever else this sermon may or may not do, that could have a lasting impact because we need grace, mercy and peace. We are weak and we sin and far too many churches have been damaged by leaders falling and taking others down with them. Please pray for us. We still need grace and we still need mercy and we certainly want peace. Will you pray it for us? How is the church to be protected? We need people appointed by God, continually supplied with grace, mercy and peace and thirdly, who boldly command. This is verses 3 to 7. Who boldly command. Now, Timothy having authority isn't just a theory. He wasn't just a pastoral advisor who made suggestions. He was a leader who was to command. Verse three. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Timothy was to command. And to command, he needed to know three things. He needed to know what is true and what is false, what is useful and what is useless, and who is serving and who is self-promoting. Let's go through those each in turn. He needed to know what is true and what is false. This comes from verse three. Command those, command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Now, you might know that 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles, pastoral epistles. That means letters to pastors as Paul passed on his baton, passed on his pastoral work to them. And in those pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, there is an emphasis on there is a body of truth to be passed on. So for example, chapter 1, verse 10 says there's such a thing as sound doctrine. Do you see in verse 10 the phrase sound doctrine? It's saying there is a set of teaching that is healthy. And Paul's passing it on to Timothy. So in chapter 6, verse 20, this has been entrusted to Timothy's care. Chapter 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge. Because you've got the truth entrusted to your care. There's been a body of sound doctrine passed to you. And Timothy, he must entrust it to others. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach Others, it's got to be, this body of truth must be passed on. And so Titus, in Titus 1 verse 9, is to appoint leaders who, it says, hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Those are just examples, there are others that show there was this body of truth that had become recognised. This is the truth, this is what is to be passed on. And so verse 3 says, I'll give you a a more accurate translation than, than we have here. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command them to teach no other doctrine. So it means Timothy must know right doctrine, he must know the body of doctrine which is right. And those who are teaching something different, he's got to command them to stop. Not request they tone it down. Not suggest they put it differently. Not just say, oh well, we've got a difference of emphasis. Now he's got to command them to stop it. How does this apply to us? Well, I think that we're a church that's keen on Bible teaching. But I think there are two dangers around for us that could mean we fail to do this, recognising there is a body of truth and we must stop teaching that is outside it. Uh, And it's this. If you saw that a Bible college had a course called Christian Dogmatics, what would you think of that? What do you think of that title, Christian Dogmatics? Sound appealing to you? Or does it sound a bit too dogmatic? Don't like being dogmatic today, do we? It seems to me there's a strange feeling around which says Bible study is good. Yes, we want lots of Bible study but get suspicious of working out exactly what the Bible teaches on a particular subject and putting it down systematically and saying, this is the truth once delivered to the saints on this subject. Maybe even writing it in a creed or a confession. Well, we don't like that. But 1 Timothy says we must be clear what the truth is so we can stop false doctrine. If it's our responsibility, I must add that, because it's not everyone's responsibility to find out what everyone else is teaching and stop it. That would be chaos. So there's one danger where I think we we could be hindered from doing what 1 Timothy 1, 1.3 says. Another danger is this, and it's often coming from a right desire to be gentle, which is we don't ever want to say anyone's wrong. To not, We don't want to actually say they're wrong. So, for example, David Robertson is a minister up in Scotland. Well, he was. He's just moved to Australia. And he was in debate with another Scottish minister who didn't believe what the Bible says about Jesus. And plenty of people went to the debate, and it seems they were quite happy to hear the debate and quite interested in the discussion. And... Till this, they wanted the debate ended by by the two saying, we are all brothers who can sit down at the Lord's table together. David Robertson said, sorry, I can't say that. Because if he doesn't believe what the Bible says about who Jesus is, we can't sit down at the Lord's table together. And then, I feel like saying, all hell broke loose, which would sound very flippant, but in a sense it's not, it's actually quite literal. Because the devil doesn't like us being as definite as one Timothy says we should be. Timothy needs to be clear what is true and what is false. He also needs to be clear what is useful and what is useless. This is verses 4 to 6. Verses 4 to 6. Now, it is said that medieval theologians, when was medieval? I don't know, I suppose the 1400s and the 1500s. That they debated how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. <laughs> it's said that that's what they, one of the things they debated, because they thought angels can be in more than one place at a time. You could. Uh. But there's actually no evidence that they really did debate that, but the point was they loved useless philosophical debates. They were taken up with useless things. And the teachers in Ephesus were taken up with stories that had been made up about Old Testament heroes. And they were taken up with controversies about family records. There it is in verse 4. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies. Now, it's not completely clear what the myths were and what the genealogies were. But the point is, they didn't achieve anything useful. They didn't do God's work. The same could be said for a lot of internet blogs and debates that go on uh, online. Very interesting, but they waste an awful lot of time. Instead, Paul says, focus on what is useful. How can you identify what's useful? Well, it's at the end of verse 4. It's at the end of verse 4. Useful things rely on faith in Jesus. Teaching that is useful relies on, emphasises, faith in Jesus. That's there at the end of verse 4. And, verse 5, it aims to grow love. It aims to grow love, verse 5. The goal of this command is love. Well, at a gay pride march recently in London a church leader got up and said, we as a church support what you're doing at this Gay Pride March. We don't want any of those debates that Christians sometimes get into over is homosexuality right or wrong, because love is love. Is that what verse 5 means? Don't get involved in useless debates. We just want to promote love. But no, because there in their society, the danger was law without love. In our society, the danger is love without law. And verse 5 says, actually, that's no love at all. Because real love comes from three things. Can you see them in verse 5? Three things that real love comes from. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul says to Timothy, concentrate on the things that promote love. And love is warm. And love is feeling and it's also secure and stable because it comes from a pure heart. That means God's work in the heart. A good conscience. That means a life in line with his commands. It's not free of law. And a sincere faith. That means a real trust in Jesus the Saviour. So Timothy needs to know what's true and false. What is useful and what's useless. And he also needs to know who is serving and who is promoting self. This is verse 7. Verse 7. They, these false teachers, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. These teachers want to be, they want to be teachers of the law. They want a position that's highly regarded. They want to talk about their ministry and have a big following online. They want to sound impressive in church meetings. They want people to notice what they do. They want to be looked up to. And a big emphasis in 1 Timothy is on needing to spot false teachers by discerning their character and their actions. 1 Timothy doesn't actually say so much about what their false doctrine is. It more says, look at how they behave. There's something wrong there. And this will need discerning because there are people who want to serve for good motives. Just have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he decides a noble task. So there are people who rightly say, I want to serve and, and I can see that that serving will be good for the church. While there are other people who just want to be noticed and promoted, So no wonder the church needs people appointed by God and supplied with grace, mercy and peace. Because such discernment is difficult and because we mustn't be a church full of people pretending that we can work out everyone else's motives and hearts. That will be a recipe for a lot of busybodies. So the church needs leaders who know what is true and what is false, what is useful and what is useless, Who is serving and who is self-promoting? And have you remembered the point of all this? The point is, how can we protect the church for the future? We need people appointed by God, receiving grace, mercy and peace, boldly commanding, while fourthly and lastly, keeping the focus on the gospel. This is verses 8 to 11. Verses 8 to 11 are about keeping the focus on the Gospel. Now, how did all that talk about false teachers and saying that some people are wrong sound to you? How did it sound to you, all that emphasis on you've got to discern what's false and see wrong motives? Did it all sound a bit harsh and negative and dark? Well, it is there in 1 Timothy but it's got a purpose that is loving and positive and about spreading the light. Because it's about the gospel. Paul has spoken against so-called teachers of the law, but is he against the law? No. Verse 8. Verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. But how do you use the law properly? Well, he shows in verses 9 to 11. What is the law good at? It's good at showing up sin. And so he goes through, he's basically roughly going through the commandments, but put in very stark terms. It's no good at changing hearts, but it's very good at showing up hearts, and so driving us to Jesus who can change our hearts. It's that that old story that we so need that the law is like a mirror and that mirror can show up the dirt on your face but you're a fool if you try rubbing your face on the mirror to get the dirt off. No, the mirror is to get you washing it off with the soap and water. And the law is very good at showing us what we're like but it is no good at changing what we're like. It is to drive us to Jesus who can change our hearts. I wonder, what were your history lessons like at school? It seems to me there's quite a few people around who've been put off history for life by history teachers who made it rather boring and dry. I hope you're not one of them, because history's a wonderful subject. It is a pity that some people have been put off history by their history teachers. That is a pity. But false teachers are not just a pity, they're a tragedy. Because by their misuse of the law, they put people off the message that can show them their sin and the Saviour who can deal with that sin. Now, we're not going to move on to verse 12 onwards tonight, but, but verse 12 onwards, Paul gives a personal example of this. He isn't wandering off the subject. He's giving a personal example of he was a lawbreaker. Just have a quick look at verse 13 even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. In other words, I broke the laws about God and I broke the laws about my neighbour. The law showed him up. But, verse 14, but... The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, not by the law but by him, I was transformed and forgiven. Now that is why we need to protect the church for the future. That is why we need to be clear and definite about what is true and false. However much it might sound harsh sometimes. We need it because the gospel is too good To allow it to be endangered, or distorted, or obscured, or just get pushed out by other emphases. The gospel is too good for us to allow that. What is this gospel like, according to verse 11? Let's move on to our last verse. What is the gospel like? Verse 11 says, it's the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Actually, a more accurate translation is... It is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You might say, that's no different. It's almost no different. Yes, the gospel is glorious, but the point here is, it's the gospel that shows up the glory of God. It's the gospel that shows us he's the blessed God. In other words, he is perfect and he is happy. He's the blessed three in one, perfectly happy. In other words, he's the opposite to us. We're not perfect. And he's in no need of us. And yet he reaches down to us and he lifts us up to him so we can share in his blessedness, share in his perfection and share in his happiness. The happiness of the three in one who love each other. Now that is good news worth protecting. So Paul wrote to Timothy and he was like a relay runner who'd run with the baton and he'd run a good race but it was time to pass the baton on to the next runner and he passes it on to Timothy because Paul was concerned for the future of the church. Are you concerned for the future of Hollywell? I hope so. If you're part of Holywell, you should have a concern for your church and a concern for its future. Will there be a gospel church here? Will the gospel be showing up God's glory here in 20, 30, 40 years' time? Will it? Well, let's pray that God would provide for the future people who are appointed by him, continually supplied with grace, mercy and peace, bold to command where it's needed, while keeping the focus on the gospel.